0: Human beings have an ability to tolerate quite a bit. Oftentimes, this is a helpful survival strategy rather than being overwhelmed by life's frailties to the point fight or flight is kicking in. It's generally a good thing to accept the realities of existence that cannot be changed and then operate accordingly on that basis. This is better than being constantly unnerved by real and sometimes alarming things that it seems one cannot control. But sometimes a huge disruption lets people know that they have been tolerating something concerning, that's impact could have been mitigated by a sustained effort which leads to a new solution. Neil Day, CTO of R0, makes this point about the seeming unstoppability of certain infectious diseases.
1: When you take a step back, coronavirus has really highlighted the issue of transmission in public spaces. Think back pre-coronavirus, we all went to the office and. Pretty regularly, there would be a wave of flu or norovirus neurovirus that swept through the office and just kind of part of life. You got sick when you went to school or spent time in the office, and we kind of accepted that. We don't think that has to be the way things are. If you think back to the world pre-antibiotics, if you got a minor cut or a fairly common disease like strep throat could have terrible consequences. Lots of people died from bacterial infections, and we just don't accept that in a post-antibiotic world. We feel the same way about having really good disinfection
0: technology. No rational person would ever ask for a terrible pandemic to rock the entire world. But existence is not always straightforward, where something perceived as bad only delivers bad outcomes, or something deemed good always delivers good results. Sometimes good comes from bad and bad comes from good. In the case of this pandemic, there will be some positive outcomes born from the collective response to this otherwise tragic situation. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Neil explains how R0 quickly realized the scale of the coronavirus and became determined to create a disinfectant product to help enable people to live their lives as healthily as possible. Leaning on the historical scientific record of the efficacy of UV as a disinfectant, R0 created a mobile machine for B2B businesses to disinfect public spaces. Neil also chats about his transition from Blue Bottle to R0. Enjoy this episode. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have a special guest. Listen, you know, if you've listened to the show, I have an affinity for people making actual products, physical products. We have one of those here today. Neil Day is the CTO of R0. Neil, welcome to the show.
1: Great. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Awesome. So we've read up on R0. It's very fascinating, but for audience members that may not know, tell us what is R0 and what do you guys do?
1: Yeah, R-Zero is a biosafety company. We build um, disinfection systems that eliminate pathogens from um, public spaces. So our first product was uh, called ARC, and uh, it's a very powerful UVC lamp that can sterilize 1,000 square feet in about seven minutes, and it's uh, effective against coronavirus, um, all kinds of viruses, bacteria, mold, et cetera. We built it to help people get back to the places that they love gathering, work, school, places
0: like that. Okay. So this is a very timely product given the current environment of where we live. But for those of you listening and aren't able to picture or imagine what this lamp, the Arc product by R0 looks like, I'm going to describe it in my best way. Imagine a tower with four pillars. It's narrow. So it's like you could possibly grip it if you had big hands. It's a tower. It looks like it's about waist high. I'm sure you can make them bigger. It's got pillars of light and these lights or lamps are the UV lamps. It's on roll rolling wheels. So it's similar to like an office chair. You can roll it to wherever you need it to be. And Neil, you just said when the light is on up to a thousand square feet, it's going to disinfect and kill harmful germs, bacteria, viruses, and things of that nature. Is that is that an accurate description?
1: Yeah. And one of the other key things we built in was IoT technology. So not only does it do its job killing pathogens, but it collects data about when, where, and how long it was run. And that allows us to to give people confidence that it's actually been used properly in spaces. So the hardware component was a big piece, but also the the software for providing transparency and auditability was another big aspect of the project too.
0: Yeah, let's dive into how you and the team developed this product or have worked on this product because a lot of times when there's a physical product like this, it takes years and years of development. Obviously, we aren't currently in an interesting time period of the pandemic where pathogens are of principal concern. When did this project start? When did it begin where teams were starting to say like, "Hey, listen, we we want to develop this tool, give me give me an idea of like the founding of the story because it didn't start a year ago at least I don't think it did. But it started a year and a half ago actually. A year and a half it was it? Was it brought on by coronavirus? Yeah. yeah. So Ben
1: Grant and Eli, uh, the the three founders, got together at the beginning of April last year, realizing that coronavirus was going to completely change uh, the landscape in some meaningful ways and. You know, started thinking ahead to when people wanted to return to work and sort of gather in the ways that we're all accustomed to, and and thought about how we could hasten that and and enable it through technology. I got involved uh, a couple of weeks after the founding of R Zero and uh, joined as an advisor as they were starting to think through. The particularly the software and backend infrastructure uh, to kind of bring this to life, and was just excited by the vision, the team, and uh, decided to join full time over that summer, and have really been full time since July of uh, of last year. The initial product concept came together pretty quickly in in that April timeframe, and we had prototypes up and running by. Late June, early July, and uh, we're in initial manufacturing in August of that year. So uh, it was an incredibly rapid development cycle for Arc, and uh, and the software came together pretty quickly as well. So speed was a big, a big consideration for us.
0: Yeah, give us an idea of the thought process behind this, because uh, as you suggested, there are certain pieces of technology that the Arc tool relies on that are scientifically proven methods, right? The UV lamp that actually kills off the pathogen. So you knew that if you brought this lamp here, what were like the technical requirements that you, that you guys had to figure out? Like, okay, it's one thing to have UV lamps. That's easy. Because I'm sure the thought process is how we package it, how we turn it into a consumer product. That's where all the IP, I guess, or in this case, it's similar to, it reminds me, because I'm a surfer, uh, how neoprene was a material that people have created a wetsuit. They didn't create neoprene. They're just like, hey, if you make the bodysuit out of this, you can keep people warm. So it's already existing, but you guys also put some product modifications on it because you couldn't just roll out UV lamps. I guess that'd be too much. When we started thinking about
1: the problem, we wanted to find a technology that was incredibly effective, very well proven. We didn't want to try to create something from whole cloth that we were going to have to convince people would work. Looking at many of the alternatives out there and and looking at... uh, The environments where sterilization is is necessary, Um, UV really came to the surface. You know, it's used in operating theaters and intensive care units. And those are the the most demanding applications and it has to work and it has to be efficient. So that really, I think, um, set our, our sights on UVC. But beyond that, thinking about the the situations we wanted to use it in uh, really drove a lot of the design decisions. So we wanted it to be as powerful as possible and thus be able to disinfect as quickly as possible and handle large spaces. And so, you know, we looked at the electrical requirements and commercial buildings and basically went right up to how much you can draw from an outlet without causing circuit breaker problem. <laughs> so, so that was actually one of the big limiting factors was, you know how much power can we get to this thing how quickly and uh, and that that ended up driving a bunch of the design and you know it turns out that hair dryers are are kind of great examples of high draw appliances i'm sure we've all had our circuit breakers trip when someone's running
0: too much hair dryers and vacuums every time you turn one of those on the lights go down in your house usually exactly uh So so we draw just a a touch less than
1: a hairdryer and put out a tremendous amount of UVC. And and we're one of the most powerful products on the market, um, even among the commercial grade ones out there. I think another big consideration for us was usability and ease of use that drove a lot of the design decisions. And especially on the software side, you know, figuring out how to take something that's typically used by infection control specialists, people with master's degrees and certifications and and make it more accessible to a broader set of people was was a pretty critical piece of our design thinking on this. And then safety was a huge thing. You know, a powerful UV light can definitely cause problems with exposure. So we put I would say more than half of the design time was figuring out how to make it safe and be able to detect when people got in range of it and turn it off before it could cause any, any harm. So, so that was a really big, a really big
0: consideration as well. So I equate it to like lights in the movies, in the movies when vampires get hit with sunlight, like they instantly like vaporize. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this is what this is. This UV light, the pathogens, the vampires. But we as people, we also have to be, <laughs> we also have to limit our exposure. We can't see it either. You got these towers. They look cool. You satisfy that one side, right? Consumer products have to kind of look cool for people to want to have them in their house because it is big enough where storage would be a problem. So people typically would think of this as like, would I be willing to have it exposed or like showing? So I think it looks cool. Talk a little about the safety component of it because as you mentioned, This is one of those products where it's not good enough to just tell users like, hey, don't be in front of it when it turns on. Like the reality is, you know, like little babies are going to run through the room or kids or like there's so many things you can't control, right? You can't just say, hey, don't get hit by the light. How did you guys go about the safety of this product?
1: Yeah, there there are a couple of key aspects um, from a safety perspective. So one of them is the startup sequence and and having a very clear countdown when you engage the machine. And uh, we have a light ring at the the top of the device that uh, starts blinking yellow, basically, as another visual cue that something's about to happen. Having the the startup sequence and and lots of visual cues was was one thing. We do train everyone when we deliver devices and and kind of take them through the safety protocols and stuff like that. But the the really key thing was building a very reliable TIR sensor based uh, sensor system that can detect any movement at a considerable distance from the device. And and part of the design was making sure that. We could detect people far enough away so that even if they do get a little bit of exposure, they're far enough away that it's harmless, essentially. So so having enough distance, enough accuracy, and a fast enough response time was, was really key to making that safety system work. And, and we tested, tested that, as you can imagine, extensively.
0: Okay. So who was the first test subject to make sure that this thing would turn off if, uh, if a person got in range?
1: Our CEO Grant had the honor of being the first, uh,
0: the first live
1: tester. We'd, we'd of course already done quite a lot in the lab um, on the benchtop when we were doing the circuit design and, and mechanical engineering. So. We were pretty sure we weren't going to expose him, but uh, he, he had the honor.
0: Gotcha. And it worked, I'm, I'm assuming, just flawlessly. Oh, yeah. It it, it works. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah. By, by the time we were ready to start building later prototypes, we tested that thoroughly and uh, made some modifications along the way to improve distance and accuracy and all that kind of
0: thing. By the way, as you were telling the story, I was thinking to myself about I forgot what the name of the show was called, but it was with Donnie Deutsch was the host. And they were talking to the CEO of Taser. And he talked about how their company mission and goal was to create non-lethal means of incapacitating humans and defending humans. And they said, well, how did you know it was non-lethal? It's like, well, we had to try it on somebody. It's like, who did you try it on? I was like, well, unfortunately it was me. (laughs) 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 He was the first person to get hit by the Taser. They said that's actually how they actually used to demo it. They used to demo it by... You know, they'd be in front of uh police. Let's say the police force, and the person would be like, "Well, how do we know it's non lethal?" I was like, "Well, shoot me with it," <laughs> and they would let him do it. And then apparently, inevitably, he joked that there would always be one officer that was like, "I can take it." <laughs> you know, you got to think this is before tasers. Like he's faking. I'll take one. And then once he got crippled to the ground, they were like, "Okay, this thing works." Wow. <laughs> so this is an amazing technology. It's as you mentioned before, it was scientifically known that this would work. I want to share some of the stats that you guys have on your website. I think it's pretty fascinating for our listeners. On your website, you claim a two-to-one ROI versus manual spray, but you guys have some amazing factoids. So it is estimated, for example, you guys have cited a study where less than 50% of the surfaces that if you manually clean something, that you will actually touch less than 50% of the surfaces. I'm going to tell you right now, as a person who's dusted before, 100% true. Because even if I tried my best, I couldn't get it all. And then A lot of times I won't try my best, (laughs) so I'll leave some behind.
1: Yeah. Well, and another thing about manual cleaning, and it certainly has its place, but for doing large spaces regularly, it's really difficult. And especially with bleaches and and other chemicals, you've got a couple of interesting problems. One is if you read like Clorox wipes bottle really carefully, um, you have to leave the surface wet for quite a long period of time like several minutes typically for the bleach to have full inactivation of pathogens and you know a lot of people just give it a quick wipe and and that'll help but it it, it won't get you to the disinfection levels that people are really looking for so the amount of contact time is a big issue just physically getting enough solvent or chemical on the surface can be difficult We're certainly hearing from some of our customers that just the amount of chemical exposure that people are getting is is problematic.
0: Just for everyone's notice to know, the site cites some amazing things, right? So beyond the 50% of the surfaces, that's awesome. It talks about how the traditional methods of disinfection are actually quite unsustainable, whether it's gallons of chemicals, all the way down to the workers' comp claims that people have for being overexposed, inhaling, issues related to respiratory problems. This is pretty fascinating stuff. Now, you mentioned when we first started this conversation that hey, COVID-19 was what sparked this idea like hey, we need to get this to market fast, which you've also identified there's even more viruses and stuff that it can kill like influenza, norovirus, HAIs, E. coli, staph. This methodology is already was already in play at hospitals. Is that accurate? They they would shine UV light inside of the operating room to kill off everything. Absolutely. Yeah. So UV light
1: has been around for a long time. It's been used successfully in hospitals and other medical settings. Back uh, in the 40s and 50s, when tuberculosis was a big problem, it was used very successfully to stop the spread of airborne tuberculosis. There's just a tremendous amount of history and science um, and efficacy data on it. And so it's useful for pretty much all microorganisms um, are inactivated by UVC. What it does is um, breaks the DNA and RNA chains and inactivates the virus uh, or the mold or whatever keeps it from reproducing and spreading and from having any impact um, when we encounter it. So uh, it's, it's very effective, very fast. And it's great because as you mentioned, it doesn't put extra chemicals or other contaminants into the space as well, so it's a very clean way of inactivating pathogens.
0: What else happens to other living organisms? Let's say if they're in the room. So, like, let's just go simple, like house plants, right? Does it have impact on house plants or anything like that? There are varying levels
1: of sensitivity, but you know, UVC basically creates something like a sunburn. So, you know, if you leave a, a plant in direct sunlight for a long time that doesn't naturally like high sun, um, it'll sort of brown and discolor. Um, and that's the kind of thing that you would see with, um, with a lot of UV exposure for, for plants. That's the reason that all of our products are very careful about human or animal exposure. We have the sensors. Uh, we do the training to make sure people don't put it in inappropriate circumstances. And we do a lot of engineering to limit exposure.
0: A lot of the technology that was developing wasn't the light; it was how to protect people from the light, how to control the light. You mentioned some of the sensor technology, the IoT technology, and it looks like you can operate this with your, your you know, your cell phone, timers, sensors, all that stuff's awesome. And you tested it on the CEO to confirm it; and it was confirmed. It shut off when he entered the room, so perfect. Now these things work. How do you get a product like this to market? Because I feel like it's making medical claims, or was it like it was it considered a medical device? Like how did it get to market to the point where you could actually, you know, sell it to another person?
1: So it's not considered um, a medical device, but we designed it to those standards and um, basically have, have been very careful about the, the mechanical and electrical design of, of the product, so it meets standard electrical um, requirements, etc. Getting it to market quickly was really a process of elimination. <laughs> it's like if, if you have a, a short period of time to get something done, um, it's it's really a question of what don't you do, and uh, and how do you sort of sequence things in a way that meets your objectives and and gives you lots of flexibility. We started the hardware design first for obvious reasons. We you know we need to build the physical product. At the same time, uh, began the embedded systems work and the software work. And it actually took longer for a bunch of reasons to get the the firmware and the software done than it did to actually build the physical product. And so one of the things we had decided early on was that we'd have full over-the-air updates available on the device. And one of the optimizations was... We built the OTA update mechanism first, made sure it worked on the device and then started shipping the physical hardware and, and later went and brought the MVP of the software on board over cellular and in some cases over Bluetooth as well. So so that allowed us to parallel path to development efforts where, you know, if we had tried to sequence them, it would have taken more than twice as long to get the product to market. So that was a kind of a very intentional decision pretty early in the program.
0: Hearing you say that, it seems totally logical. I mean, very smart move. You know, we we looked at some of the research we did when we were having you, before we had you on as a guest, knew you were coming on, we saw articles about how the company booked $5 million in three months, that it's quickly been tested, or I guess, and you might have an update to this, but like we found that the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, and Major League Soccer all chose R0 as a disinfectant solution. So there's a lot of companies very quickly making a bet on you, big bets. I'm curious how these organizations, how these operations are now giving you feedback because I guess, how are they measuring this also? Because there's another crazy thing, right? I can't see a pathogen. So I actually have no clue if you're killing any, right? All I know is, are my team sick or is my team, or are my people not sick? And then even if they are sick, I don't know if it came from the fact that your machine didn't work or they got it from someone else. So this is one of those tough things to measure. Like, how do I know that your machine is doing what it's supposed to be doing? I'd love to hear some of the feedback you're getting from the, the consumer place. So so we've
1: gotten really positive, strong feedback from customers. Um, one of the things that they love about the product is the fact that they can go to our dashboard and see exactly how it was used um, in the space. And, and that gives... The facilities manager's confidence that it's getting used as designed and and doing its job. And with uh, a bunch of our early customers, we went in and helped them set up the programs, gave them guidance on on how to create processes, um, measure the results. Uh, we, we even went with uh, little dosimeters um, that measure how much UV got delivered to various points in big rooms so, so they could uh, figure out proper positioning and stuff like that. And all of that early work has allowed our customer success team to, to really quickly get people set up, show them how to use it, how to design processes, and then go back and, and just see every day that it's getting used um, as intended. And I think the the peace of mind, knowing that the key spaces have been disinfected and, and they can go and see a, a daily chart of how many cycles were run, in which areas, uh, just gives the facilities managers, as well as the people who are using the space, confidence that it's being used properly. You know, it is a hard problem to determine where people get sick. We don't spend all our time at the office or, you know, in a school or whatever. You have other other spaces that uh, you can be exposed. But I think with just such a solid scientific foundation and the visibility as to how it's being used, it just provides a lot of confidence. And we've heard really good feedback from customers that their employees and, and students feel really good about having it. We have some anecdotal evidence that that it has had a, an impact on how often people are getting getting sick in spaces. We're we're starting to look at doing some really um, solid scientific studies with full protocol to, to actually prove that out, that's that's something we'll be looking at over the next several months.
0: Yeah, it's going to be fascinating because uh, you know I'll just speak for myself. I'm a father. I got 3 kids. If anyone who's got kids out there knows schools an absolute germ factory. At 100%, they're going to your kids are going to get sick just because they're around other people that are sick. The product R0 is so new. I know like you said there's not enough data or long-term studies done but I think it's coming like you suggested it'll be fascinating if like schools that implement let's say this r0 system and then other schools that don't if you look at like the student body infection rates or things like that like if you see if you see material difference it'll be quite evident that this is a long-term big play right now we as a society are very very conscious of cleaning things maybe a little less thoroughly than when you know like last year when people were like wiping down everything and crazy. People were drying their hands off because they were using so much hand sanitizer, right? <laughs> now, people have kind of loosened their guard a little bit, but it's still there. People definitely care very much so about the disinfection. I can actually see a place where the visual spotting of this will actually increase consumer confidence. Like if I were to walk in a restaurant and see one on the side, i be like, oh, these guys, these guys disinfect every night like this. This is going to be great. Great. Yeah, that's you know something
1: we think about a lot, and uh, you'll you'll be seeing some stuff from us in the in the next several months that uh, that'll kind of pick up on that cue a bit. Can't talk about it quite yet, but there's fun stuff coming. And you know, when you take a step back, you know, I think coronavirus has really highlighted the issue of transmission in public spaces. I mean, think back pre-coronavirus, we all went to the office and. Pretty regularly, there would be a a wave of flu or neurovirus that swept through the office. And, you know, it was just kind of part of life. You got sick when you went to school or spent time in the office. And we kind of accepted that. We don't think that has to be. The way things are. I mean, if you think back to the world pre antibiotics, you know, if you got a minor cut or um, a fairly common disease like strep throat, you know, it could have terrible consequences. Lots of people died from bacterial infections. And we just don't accept that in a post antibiotic world. We feel the same way about having really good disinfection technology, you know, certainly it's important for coronavirus, which has been a generational event, but it can have the same impact on flu and other stuff that we just take for granted that that has a real impact on on people's lives and and productivity. So we look forward to a world where, you know, getting the flu is the exception, not, not an annual event or colds or just all of the stuff that, that we accept as just part of normal sickness, then we think that can can significantly get reduced with the use of these kinds of technologies.
0: The one thing that we wanted to also talk on this is because you have an interesting background. Your background, you were CTO of Blue Bottle. For those who don't know, and I'm sure most of the people who listen to the show are in tech, so they know what Blue Bottle is, high-end, premium, I don't know how best, that's how I describe it, high-end, premium. Coffee retailer, coffee store, coffee shops, uh, also sold consumer packaged coffee at groceries. I wouldn't guess that a company like that would need a CTO, but I guess every company needs a CTO. I'm curious, how did you make the transition from coffee to like what I would say is, like you said, it's not a medical device, but it it feels like one. But how did you make that transition?
1: I love solving problems and learning new stuff.
0: It's a common theme among our guests, no question.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, I've been really fortunate to. Um, work in a bunch of different verticals where the problems are are very different. And for me, a lot of the fun is just going and figuring it out, really learning how the world works now and, and what you could do with technology and then helping bring it to life. Coffee for me was a hobby run horribly amok. Uh, I, uh, (laughs) you know, I've uh, I've been a serious coffee lover since I was a teenager. It it is the uh, fuel of software engineering, and I embraced it fully early on. And then uh, when I was living in Chicago, I ended up going to barista school and learning how to make a really good espresso, and that that kind of. Uh, that experience was part of the light bulb that brought me towards um, perfect coffee and then Blue Bottle. But that was just a journey of learning and uh, kind of totally immersing myself in, in a completely different space. And and you know, R Zero similar um, uh, had had some exposure to healthcare. Um, uh, did a lot of and continued to do a lot of work with a wonderful company called Doctor Consulta then in Sao Paulo that does very high-tech primary care, got a lot of exposure to that world for them. And then Ben and I met and uh, started talking about R0, just saw a massive opportunity that could make a real difference in people's lives. And, and it was a totally new domain to go really dig into, sink my teeth into, and figure out how to, how to make something exciting. The learning and the, and the process of discovery is really what excites me about all these kinds of things.
0: This job in particular, well, you know, I'll I won't speak for you, but I'm just fascinated by it because it seems like something that should have been obvious. You know, you know how there's certain things that once you see them in the market, you're like oh, of course we should have had that for a long time, but for whatever reason there wasn't. And then when you see it, it's like it's clearly obvious, like, oh, this should have been a product a while ago. And so I'm really excited how many how much benefit it can be, and I know for myself, my wife, she's a germaphobe. Once she hears this episode, she can't wait to get her hands on one of these. When do you think it'll be like mass market available? It looks like right now, the, way, the only way to order it, like I have to talk to a sales rep, call you directly. Is it going to be like a Dyson vacuum? I can just go to my hardware store and get one?
1: We're working on a new generation of products that's going to be much more suitable for consumer use. So this really was designed with a sort of a, a B2B frame of reference. Uh, This is is really for spaces where people gather and you've got a fair amount of traffic. Um, It's you know honestly it's kind of overkill for a home. Uh,
0: (laughs) I told you my wife's a germaphobe. I'm telling you, there's a lot of them out there. I think they'll buy them. I'm sure we can figure that out, but um, it it has largely
1: (laughs) been sort of business focused. But there's some really exciting things happening. In the technology behind uh, UVC that are allowing us to make smaller, more suitable products for smaller offices and potentially homes and, and things like that. So, one of the areas that we're uh, really excited about is uh, something called FAR UVC. It's a different wavelength of uh, UVC um, that's actually safe for humans. Um, and you can be in a room with a FAR UV light source and not have to worry about the same kind of safety effects that you see with um, ARC and with other products where the wavelength is is much more reactive with skin and eye tissue and, and all of that. Far UV doesn't react at all. And so you can you get both service and air disinfection while you're in the ring. So uh, that's, that's something we're working
0: actively on and, and you'll see some cool stuff from us soon. No, that is beyond fascinating. Neil, I want to say thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries. You know We definitely tilt more towards software, but I'm always fascinated by people making physical things that are gonna improve the world around us. So this is amazing. I can completely see it. And this is a secondary question and you might not know the answer, but I do, I have to ask. So notoriously bacteria is actually what makes your stuff stink. I noticed these pro sports teams are using, have they made mention that it smells less bad in the locker room? I'm just curious.
1: No, I haven't heard that. It wouldn't surprise me if it did have an impact on that. But, um, you know, now I'm going to have to go ask. Um,
0: <laughs> there you go. Because I'm telling you right now, if you develop one small enough where it just kills like the stink of my kids stuff, every hockey mom and dad in America will buy this for their kid because this is a, this is a real, if you're a hockey parent, this is a real problem.
1: Oh, I, <laughs> I totally know. So some of our best friends, uh, they're, all three of their kids were on the Junior Sharks. They are definitely a hockey family and, uh, and they both comment about the toxicity of the duffel bags when they come home from practice. <laughs> it's legendary. Yeah, I can, I can imagine that uh, anything that'll solve that problem would be, would be great. You know, I, I helped do the, um, setup at the 49ers and I definitely need to go follow up with them and see if they've noticed a, a reduction in, uh, in locker room. Aroma.
0: <laughs> Maybe that's a secondary use case for the ARC and the ARC air. Uh, those of you guys listening, ARC air is another product of R0. It kills 99% of pathogens and it looks like it's like an air filtration system. It's going to suck air in, clean it up, send it back out. We take it that this is just the path R0 is going to continue to go down, which is, I guess, like touchless ways to disinfect and clean up the world around us. Is that like the main mission and goal? I don't know if you've even established that yet, given the yeah. youth of the company.
1: Disinfection is, is one of the key things we work on. The other thing that we're putting a lot of energy into is basically risk management. So, so there are kind of two pieces of the puzzle. In, in one regard. So, you know, having good disinfection tools and the ability to go and clean spaces is really important. But as we kind of touched on earlier, you can't entirely eliminate risk, but the more you can understand it and make informed choices, the better we think people can do with managing the spread of disease. So uh, another big piece of what we're building is um, sensor technology so we can understand how many people have been in spaces for what period of time. And we're, we're using that to think about uh, doing real-time risk modeling. So we can say, hey, this is either like green, clean, it's been cleaned recently and hasn't had a lot of traffic, or it's yellow, it might need another cleaning or other countermeasures and, and just really help provide more visibility into the risk status of spaces. So sensors are are a big part of that, understanding Both the movement of people in space and then other aspects of the space that can have a a big impact on how transmission happens um, are are another area we're, we're putting a lot of energy into right now.
0: Neil, I want to say thank you again for joining us today on IT Visionaries. But before you go, the Lightning Round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Neil, this is where we ask you questions outside of the realm of work so our audience can get to know you a little bit better. You ready? Absolutely. Okay, so we checked out some bios on you and you're an adrenaline junkie that you enjoy windsurfing, surfing, backcountry skiing, and uh, photography of your outdoor adventures. Is this accurate?
1: Absolutely. I was on the water both days this weekend, surfing one day and paddleboarding
0: another. All right, so you're my best friend already because I love (laughs) surfing myself. All right, what kind of board do you surf? So this weekend I was out on a 10-6 Jim Phillips
1: Nose Rider. Okay, can you ride the nose? I have ridden the nose. I would not say I can regularly ride the nose. So
0: I'm—I'll uh, tell you, I cannot ride the nose. Every time I walk up there, I sink it or I fall off. Yeah. you, you got to be really firmly
1: in the pocket, or or you're going down, basically. So uh, I don't know. I'm a terrible surfer, but I love it. So I just go out as much as I can.
0: Me too. Now I've also said that those hobbies. So you have more than me because you have you have backcountry skiing as well. These hobbies take you to some of the most breathtaking places in the world. Where have you been that you just, it's burned in your memory. Like this is like one of the coolest spots on earth.
1: Valdez, Alaska is is one of the most spectacular places as a skier it's uh giant steep peaks crazy runs beautiful scenery it's a pretty remarkable place
0: wait a second but this is there's no ski resort there or is there
1: there's no ski resort there um you've got two choices uh legs or helicopters both are useful for different
0: things (laughs) oh man valdez alaska that place has always got a negative connotation because of the Exxon, the Valdez spill, which was occurred there. But when's the last time you went there?
1: So I was there in uh, 2014 last um, and uh, headed back up actually in um, April of 2022. So super excited to go back, uh, know the, the guides and have a bunch of friends up there. I just, you know, for a bunch of good and not good reasons, haven't made it in a little while. Another place I love is um, Bella Coola, British Columbia, which is north of Vancouver. It's a, another spectacular area with just great skiing. So,
0: so based on your, your responses, I would say you like skiing more than surfing. Is that accurate? No, I, I'm not sure. So I've been
1: windsurfing since I was 10, um, spend tons of time out on the water. You know, um, I have board meetings booked on my calendar uh, during the summertime. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, basically anything that involves wind, waves, snow, I'm, I'm in. I like them all equally. Um, I, I, I'm i probably a better skier than I am a surfer by by miles, but they're a huge part of my life.
0: Well, the way I describe it to people who do one or none of the activities is you think about total time on board and so when your total time on skis or on a snowboard is so much greater than when you go surfing your total time on board is very small right you're like riding the board for seconds at a time and That's why when you see professional skiing or professional snowboarding, their tricks are like ten eighty, It's like huge airs, 20 feet in the air where a pro surfer's trick is like doing a big turn.
1: (laughs) Well, and you know, the thing about surfing is it's, it's one of the most resource constrained sports ever. Like you, you've only got like a couple of feet of wave. That's good to ride. And, and you got to get in there and oh by the way there are usually 15 or 20 other people waiting to get in that little pocket as well too so it's uh, it's a social and and resource constrained activity
0: so. and for the fearful because they ask me this all the time, people are scared of wild animals. When you're a surfer, people are scared of sharks. They always want to know, have I seen a shark? But I'll ask you, have you seen a wild predator while doing any of your favorite activities, whether it's surfing or skiing? Have you ever had a close encounter with a wild predator?
1: I've seen a black bear while backcountry skiing. So I wasn't very close to it, but he was down by the river. We were up on a ridge. So we were in the same neighborhood, basically. It's funny, when I first moved out to the Bay Area, I'd been windsurfing a ton that summer. I went to a party and uh, told someone about my sailing and they said, hey, don't you worry about sharks? And I was like, mm, not really. Why? And they're like, well, you realize one of the world's largest breeding grounds is exactly in the area you windsurf all the time. And I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> um, but I've actually <laughs> I've never seen a shark while either surfing or windsurfing. Me neither. I'm sure they're out there and I've seen dolphins and all sorts of other stuff, but never a shark. The most frightening wildlife encounter I've ever had was actually down in uh, Santa Cruz. I was surfing at the hook and a sea otter decided it was going to jump up on my board and work on its, uh, work on its lunch. (laughs) It was like, Hey man, I'm here. You're leaving. (laughs) I was like, okay, you can have the board for a little while. Um, it it was not packing down. So,
0: (laughs) yeah, I'm with you. I've been surfing for decades now. I've never seen or knowingly saw a shark in the wild, but I was once bumped literally bumped by a dolphin I might have lost like 10 years of my life. Like, I freaked out because, like, it's giant, it's gray. You don't know what it is like, right? Right off the get back, but like it bumped me, and then it like breached the surface a couple feet later, and you know blew air out of its blowhole, and I was like, okay, but I was I was freaking out. I was like, I was like, oh my god, I'm I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble. I've
1: seen <laughs> dolphins a couple of times, um actually out in Hawaii. I was windsurfing, and there was a small pod, and they love hanging out with windsurfers because you know we're fast and maneuverable, and They were out in force one afternoon, and it was super cool sailing with them. They just kind of follow along, and they looked like they were having as
0: much fun as we were. Absolutely. Well, Neil, I want to say you have continued our streak of CIOs and CTOs that love, I would say, the outdoors, We the wild. We had skydivers on. We've had uh, downhill mountain bikers on. So you continue the streak. We are not a bunch of people sitting at a computer all day long. Adventurers that just happen also know how a computer works. Yeah. You, you got to get outside.
1: Some of the best problem solving happens when, when your brain's in neutral and you're focused on skiing or surfing or whatever. It's like shifting that mindset makes room for different stuff to happen.
0: Neil, thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Couldn't agree with you more. Your story was awesome. For those of you guys that aren't familiar, check it out. I Plug the websites whenever I see something really interesting for sure. It is r0.com, the letter. R and then Z E R O.com to check out their technology. Neil himself, check him out. He's got a badass background. You've worked for major companies as CIO, CTO levels for some of the biggest companies in the world. It is pretty cool that you are working on this project. I think it's going to, you know, if it works out, it's going to benefit so many people. Well, thanks so much for having me. This has been a pleasure. It's been great talking with you.